Hello and welcome to another episode of What Have We Done, a winecast for the amateur enthusiast. We're excited today to be talking about barrels because how important is a barrel for aging your wine? Pretty, pretty important. So uh, today we're going to talk about different types of barrels that are used for aging wines from oak barrels to stainless steel to other alternatives, as well as you know, what an oak barrel actually does or what a barrel does to the wine, how it affects its flavor. Um, and of course we'll be tasting wine as well. Yeah. I feel like oak is one of those things that people talk about a lot in wine, but at least for me personally, it was never really understood. Um, I've always heard wine described as oaky people talking about the barrels. Oftentimes wines are labeled like American or French oak and, I never really knew what that was and what sort of what that was doing to the wine. So today we're going to dive in a little bit to, uh, yeah, what it all means. And I have to admit that I've often associated oak with Chardonnays, you know, oh, that's an oaky art Chardonnay. And I am not the biggest fan of oaky Chardonnays. So actually, whenever I hear the term, like it's oaked, that's where my mind goes. So I'm really excited to kind of like, you know, break that narrative in my mind and see you know, like most wines are oaked, have to be in oak barrels. So yeah. Why don't you tell us about it? <laughs> yeah. So there's three main kinds of oak. There's French oak, American oak, and Hungarian oak. So each of these types of oak has their own special characteristics and things that, that it does to the wine. So French oak is sort of the, the more prestigious, um, as many things in the French wine world, uh, the most expensive, most prestigious, um, highly rated, if you will, um, type of oak. Um, part of that is based on the characteristics of the oak. Part of that is just because it's French and old. Um, but as far as characteristics go, it's selected because it's really fine-grained. And more loose-grained oak is actually better for things like cognacs and sherries, um, cause it determines how much of the flavor and at what rate, um, it seeps into the wine. Hmm. French oak adds more, uh, subtle flavor than other kinds of oak. Um, so usually when we're talking about, as Dana mentioned, shards here in California, um, it's really pronounced oaky flavors. And that's cause it's, it's not usually using French oak. So French oak is a little bit more, um, subtle. It's still commonly used in shards, but also in pinots. And that's because these grapes are a little bit more porous and tend to absorb more of the oak flavor than other grapes. So if you were to use, um, uh, a stronger type of an oak with the grape, it would absorb that much more, um, and become kind of like the Napa shards, which are very, very oaky. French oak can cost a minimum of $850 to $3,600 oh a barrel oh at the minimum, with more desired types like Allière, Vosges, and Troncé costing more than $4,000 a barrel. And those, I believe, refer to the specific regional forest from which the oak comes from. So there you go, French oak. The next and second most common type of oak is American oak. Um, and that's from the American white oak tree found largely in the forests of Missouri. Um, but other kinds of oak are used as well and found throughout the country. And these are the standard oak used in bourbon. Um, 
So there's much more flavor than the French oak. Often when um, wine people are talking about vanilla flavors and things, that's often a uh, characteristic of American oak as well as coconut. Uh, the grains are a bit looser, um, so less, less fine than the French oak. And they can cost at a minimum $360 to $500 per barrel, which is significantly cheaper most often um, than French oak. And fun fact, because American oak is so great for whiskey, many foreign producers actually own forests in the United States. So a lot of the places where oak is being used to make barrels for whiskey and wine, uh, they're owned by like Scottish, like Scotch That's producers amazing. and things like that. Uh, that was a fun <laughs> fact. A lot of this research, actually, when we were doing it, um, discussed uh, whiskeys and, and bourbons and things like that, cognacs as well. Um, just because the oaking process is somewhat similar and the types of oak being used are very similar, even though they're being used for slightly different purposes and effects. So fun fact also about what the price difference is. Do you, you remember reading about it? So I was reading about how oak barrels are made and it's because French oak can only be cut along the grain in order to make the staves, which are the longer paneling that makes up the sides of the barrel. Um, just the way that the tree is, the tree is, they can only be cut in a certain way, whereas American oak can actually be cut any which way. And so it's a lot cheaper to produce these barrels than to produce American barrels than it is French barrels, which is part of the reason why the, the difference in price. Oh, interesting. Right? <laughs> cool. And the last, the last type is Hungarian oak. Um, and that is actually the same type of oak tree as the French oak. Um, the large difference being that it is not in, from France. Um, but it's the same type of uh, oak tree grown throughout Europe. Obviously, there'll be some minor differences in terms of climate and region that will affect the oak. So, But it, it's largely very, very similar in quality and just a lot cheaper. Um, it's really popular with big, full-bodied grapes like Malbec and Petit Verdot, and it can give wines a rich, nutty flavor. Um, they're not cheap. They can still cost at a minimum of $560 to $700 a barrel, so often more than American oak, uh, but still significantly cheaper than its French oak counterpart. So much cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> I can't get over $4,000 for a barrel, uh, just because it's... That was very fancy for us. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things you talk about in this podcast is what makes wine expensive. Hmm. These are some of the things. If you're using a, a barrel that costs $5,000 per barrel, that is obviously going to be a lot more expensive to produce than uh, a wine using a cheaper Hungarian alternative. Yes. And there are several factors that go into oak barrel selections. Um, and so you may have heard about how, you know, a wine has been aged in new oak versus older or used oak. And the reasoning behind this is that depending on, I mean, it kind of makes sense, depending on how often an oak barrel has been used, it reduces the flavor. And so often, if you use a new barrel, it's you're you're going to have a little bit less control of how much of those vanilla, coconut, oaky um, tones you're going to have in your wine. 
Um, and I was reading about this on the internet, of course, and a couple of sources were talking about that by the third to fifth time in which you've used a barrel, you kind of stop getting that oaky flavor and it becomes what we call neutral. Um, and then often you want to get a new barrel. Uh, another big factor that you've probably heard is toasting. So uh, I thought this was pretty cool. Literally, wine barrels are you know placed over an open flame and the toasting refers to how much of the inside of the barrel is burned or to the degree to which it's burned. So you can have a light, medium, or heavy spectrum of toasting, and that will kind of affect the influence of the robustness of the oak flavor because the flame, you know, exposes, you know, like kind of like a, a coffee bean, right? It deepens the flavor um, and also um, change, subtly changes it as well. Um, so you're getting those more toasted notes. Um, and something that I really liked about kind of understanding the selection specifics of picking a barrel is context. So I was reading this article um, by Food and Wine magazine that spoke about how important it is to understand where you get your oak barrels from. And this kind of tags back to what you were speaking about, Kevin, about you know the types of forests, the types of climate these oak trees are coming from. Um, and knowing that, you know, your oak for your barrel is coming from a more temperate versus a cooler climate, you'll know what kind of grains you're getting. And that could kind of determine, you know, am I going to use this with a grape that has a more subtle flavor? I don't want to over oak it and overpower its natural, you know, either aromas or textures. So I'm going to put in a more finely grained barrel versus something that has the robustness to withstand a more thorough oaking that may become with like a a new American oak. <laughs> um, so that was really fun to think about these like differences, these really subtle differences that as a winemaker, you really have to understand. I feel like we've said this before, but almost every episode we go into these different factors in winemaking and every single one of them on their own seem to be like indefinite, like rabbit holes of subtle things that like affect the wine. And it, it always just astounds me with wine. And maybe we're talking to a already sympathetic audience here. Um, but just the amount of things that can make different subtle changes in the wine. Yeah. And I absolutely agree. There is this part um, about uh, discussing the context when they were talking about like natural aromas of wine. And um, I'll talk a little bit more about this later, but just even thinking about you know, from the beginning of the winemaking process, you have to understand the grapes and the flavors of a future wine, like you're tasting a wine that hasn't developed before it's fermented and aged. And you have to understand how those flavors and varietals are going to come together for something that will taste extremely different once it's bottled. And so when you're tasting it also with the oak barrel, you have to take into consideration how the oak is going to affect this wine, you know, maybe months or years before you actually take it out of the barrel, which is just also kind of amazing to think about that kind of time walking in a way. But also now we're talking about multiple climates, right? It's mm -hmm. the climate where the grape is being grown and how the different soil and weather and everything and the, the time in which the, the grape is harvested. Um, now we're talking about the climate of the forest from which the oak comes from, possibly in, in Hungary. Yeah. You know, and it, again, maybe that's very, very subtle. Um, maybe these are minor differences that no one but the most intensive sommeliers can even 
pick up on. But still, it's just it's just a whole nother like world to be thinking about. Yeah, amazing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, and yeah, I mean, yes. Period. <laughs> amazing. Um, All right. Well, let's let's put this to the test. We're gonna drink a wine here um, that is advertised. Well, the oak is advertised in the wine, and we're gonna see if we can. Uh, pick up on any of this. So this is a 2016 red blend from, um, called Casa Benesal Elegante from a winery in Spain called, um, Pago Casa Gran. It is 50% Syrah, 30% Monastrel or Mouved, and 20% Grenache Tinturera. It's not a, a, a grape that I'm Especially, you know, understanding. That's, I haven't had that one, as far as I know. Have you? No, <laughs> but I wonder if it's just like a derivative of if it, if it's from Spain, like an Alicante, mm-hmm. you know, or one of those like multiple of like more like Portuguese red varieties. Yeah. Um, I don't know. This this winemaker is also known for making. Uh, sort of more minimal intervention, organic, uh, no additives type of wines as well. And this Elegant is aged in French oak for 12 months with 10% new, 90% two to three year old oak. Um, a lot, a lot of Spanish wines, um, use French oak. So it's quite common in Spain. So let's see if we can pick up on any of the, Amazing things that French oak can do to a wine. Well, first off, it is... Wicked, wicked. Dark. Yeah, very, very dark. <laughs> this um, must be the tinto. It's for the color. Yeah. Tintorera. And I love that it has percentages. It's also not super common in uh, European bottles, as we talked about in the label episode. Always appreciate a good informative label. <laughs> Me too. Um, the oak information also, by the way, is not from the label, uh, but from the website, um, from the winemaker's website. So sometimes the information of what kind of oak and how long can be on the label. Um, but for this one, we, I looked it up on the winemaker's website. Almost has a like a pruny, Dr. Peppery kind of a, a nose to it. Yeah. So to see if I remember correctly, French oak is tightly grained, which means that it's that less of the oak flavor is getting imparted to the wine, uh, and it has more of a subtler effect. So you're going to get more. Um, less of that like heavy coconut it's going to be more along like the what are the subtle oak flavors yeah more i think so american oak i guess is going to be more yeah the coconut vanilla the sweeter types of flavors yeah and the french hungarian more of the like chestnuts roasted chestnuts uh, that kind of thing going on 
It would also be great if for the purpose of this podcast, a winemaker out there would make the same wine aged in oak and the same wine not aged in oak. So we could try those side by side. Unfortunately, I don't think that's a thing. That'd be nice. <laughs> <laughs> but I guess wines aren't made for the convenience of podcasting, so. In the future. <laughs> when we finally convince someone to own a vineyard for us, for us when they grow wines. I make my own backyard wine. Oh, yeah. (laughs) (laughs) If anything, I can get maybe a little bit of the nuttiness in the finish. So you have that, like, light, rounded texture. Another thing that oak gives is tannin. Mm -hmm. And this has quite a bit of tannin. quite a bit. Um, pretty soft tannin, but definitely uh, prevalent. Mm-hmm. It's nice. Yeah, I really like this. Oh, spoiler, I have had this wine before. Uh-huh. Um, I got on special three bottles. Um, I've seen it as cheap as 10 to $15. It's not super common, um, but it can be found in American wine stores or what I think is well under the value for the quality of wine you get. Hmm. Well, since you were talking about, you know, having a winemaker make a, I guess, a barrel or to age wine in an oak barrel, the opposite of that, or or I guess the alternative would have been a stainless steel. And the reason why winemakers will opt for a stainless steel is because unlike oak, it does not impart any flavor to the wine. Um, so it's really great for varietals like Rieslings or Algorinos that the flavors and aromas of the wines would be crushed if it was oaked or it'd be overwhelmed. Um, and another thing which kind of goes back to our tannin discussion is that steel, stainless steel barrels are airtight. So that prevents the wine from softening um, and keeps it more tart and fruit forward. So you wouldn't have these softened tannins in a wine that was... If this wine was made in stainless steel, it would probably be a lot more... Well, it wouldn't have the tannins, and it wouldn't be softened, so it would probably be a lot more jammier. You'd get more of that dark fruit in in the wine. Would it be more, like, light-bodied and, I don't know, less... Because it has, like, less tannin, less, like, weight to it? Possibly. I mean, so these varietals are pretty heavy hitters. Like mm-hmm. Monstral is a, it tends to be a, a, a heavier bodied wine. And if Grenache Tintere, Tintorero is what I think it is, which is like an Alicante varietal or like a, a deep Tinto Rioja, mm-hmm. that's going to be a heavy like octopus ink, deep red wine. So I think it would still be pretty body, but it might not have that, like, the, I keep thinking texture in my mind, but that depth of texture that mm-hmm. you get from the tannins, it might be just a little bit more smoother. One thing I like about this wine is it tastes pretty well balanced to me. I mean, yes, it has heavy tannin, but it has a lot of other stuff at the same time. And again, the tannins are quite soft. 
Mm-hmm. I agree. I'm wondering if one of the reasons it is so kind of balanced and and whole and round is, is because of the, the the choice to subtly oak it. Um, and if it was stainless steel, it would be more acidic and, uh, yeah, fruity or bitey and, like, aggressive or, or something like that. Yeah. Um, I guess the only other factor that you get from a stainless steel barrel is that it takes less time to age a wine. I mean, I guess it also depends on what grape you're, you're aging it in it, but um, that could be really a game changer for winemakers who don't have a lot of room in their cellars to keep wine for long and that have to get it bottled more quickly. So that could also be a factor, a cost factor for kind of going towards stainless steel. But they're going to lose that on you. It's a game. Yeah, another, another factor that winemakers are going to make decisions on based on whether to oak or not use oak or um, I'm going to talk about some alternatives to oak that people are using as well. Um, so a full grown oak tree, right? Pretty big tree only makes two barrels and two barrels is also only enough for 50 cases, um, which for those not familiar with sort of the case ratio of wine production, 50 cases is extremely small. Um, big wineries are making wines that are tens of thousands of cases, um, more local wineries, even smaller local wineries are still at hundreds, if not uh, in the small thousands of cases. Um, so 50 cases would be an extremely small production wine. And that's of course, um, you know, climate change and, and deforestation. Yes, it is renewable. Um, as in the trees can be cut and grown. And as far as I can tell in the wine world from where um, these oak barrels are being sourced, these are very renewable, sustainable. Um, for It's still a finite resource. Um, barrels also only use one side of the oak, right? The inside of the barrel. The whole outside of that oak never touches wine. It's going to waste in terms of the winemaking process. So more and more, uh, winemakers are turning to oak alternatives. So oak staves, oak chips, oak cubes, um, which are then put in the wine as it's being fermented and aged, in which case all of the surface area of those chips of those blocks are actually being used. So it's much, much more um, um, economic, I guess, in terms of, kind of the, the oak being put in. One challenge with this is places like the EU, um, actually with wine regulations, production and labeling regulations, require winemakers to label their wines if they are used with these oak alternatives. Um, and because of that, there's a, you know, there's a stigma around that. So they're, they're seen as more undesirable and it lowers the value of the wine. So you couldn't have, uh, a wine made with, um, that was used from, with oak chips, you know, it's not going to be a hundred dollar bottle of wine just from the default of the process that's being used. So in a, in a study in Spain, 55% of drinkers said that they would not buy a wine made with oak chips before tasting it to know if it was actually a good wine. But in multiple blind tests, there was no preferential like difference. Um, it did, people could not identify an, a wine that was 
barreled or chipped using the same types of oak. So again, I think it's kind of a, yeah, largely a, a bit of a stigma um, mm-hmm. and, and uh, ideas around what is a, what is the right way, what is the traditional way, what is the upper class way of like making wines. Um, but there are some actual real downsides to using um, oak alternatives or maybe not downsides, but just differences that have to be addressed in the, in the production. Mm-hmm. There you go. I've been slipping in some, some uh, unconscious bias there. Um, but chipping, because more surface area is used and from the process, imparts flavor a lot more quickly. So the decisions around how long it should oak um, also need to be very deliberate. And the timelines versus being barreled would be quite different. Um, it also prevents the slow oxidation process that a barrel naturally has. So oak alternatives, they, they can't do that. Um, so in recent years, techniques have been developed to allow tiny amounts of air into stainless steel tanks over the period of time. So the wine, rather than being barreled, is put into stainless steel tank with wood chips or oak dust or any of the other different oaking products. Um, and air is being released into that barrel in, you know, patterned ways to sort of mimic the effects of, of barrel aging, um, which can give the more classic barrel aged taste in a really, really good way um, without actually using the barrels themselves. It's kind of really good. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty cool. And it seems like one of those things that, yes, it makes it challenging and it presents a whole new set of challenges to do. But if done well, if done right, um, you know, probably going to make a wine just as good as using those $5,000 plus uh, French oak bags. Another technique, which here we're getting a little bit far from, from, the, from the mainstream, um, but that <laughs> would be using oak, oak extract. Oh, like um, the benefits is it's cheap and convenient. Um, but like extracts, if you ever use vanilla extract or anything and like baking and stuff in small amounts, it can be great, but in too large amounts, it, it's, it's pretty nasty. Uh, and it can give wines a, a really burnt nose. Um, and it's also, that one really does have a stigma in the wine world. I think it would be very hard to get away with using extract, um, as they exist today in a wine, but I read some articles that there's some science being done to develop uh, types of oak extracts that are a little bit more um, subtle and, and natural in the way that they're affecting wine. So I don't know, maybe in 50 years, there'll be a different thought about using oak extracts, but I'm a little bit skeptical for now at least. That's such a weird thing to think about. Like I'm, I'm thinking about how some wines are, I think we even mentioned it with this one, right? Is, is produced organically, right? Would someone who's producing a quote unquote organic wine be okay with an extract added? You know, unless the extract is organically produced. Like, I don't know. I don't even know yeah. what those kind of tiers are. I think some of the issue is that the way in which extract is made is by adding these I mean, sometimes natural flavors to like an alcohol, mm-hmm. like medium, right? Um, so is that, I don't know, is that, is that an additive? Is that natural? Um, obviously the issue with some of the, the negative 
taste repercussions is the alcohol medium. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. It's an interesting thing to think about. My my guess is just from style and uh, worldview of many people involved in the natural, organic, biodynamic wine movement is that extracts would probably never be very well accepted in that in that world. I have a feeling. Whether that is scientifically valid or not. <laughs> no, I, I, I share that feeling. <laughs> um, and kind of to go back to this question of chips and, and cubes, so there are two other factors that kind of go into the effects that oakum or oak barrels will have on a wine, which is it's the barrel size and the phenols in the wine. So two of the factors that I want to talk about are barrel size and phenols, which are a chemical compound found in oak and other things. We'll get into it. But first with barrel size as it relates to chips and your discussion about how quickly the oak will kind of seep into the wine is that there are lots of different size barrels. Not surprising. So an important thing to consider is the surface to volume ratio. So in a smaller barrel, the wine will have more contact with the surface of the oak, and thus it will get oaked a little bit more quickly. You'll get those properties that we spoke about before, um, and those like different oaky notes. Whereas if it's in a larger barrel, there's more volume for the liquid, and thus there's less contact and less exposure, which means less oak. So um, what you get from the barrel besides the oaky flavor is the transfer of oxygen, as Kevin was talking about earlier. You know, there's um, the oxygen will soften the tannins and the other flavors, making the wine more mature. And you'll also get these things called oak lactones, which I didn't look up. And I really don't know anything more beyond the name. <laughs> I think I got this info from Wine Folly. Who's the best? Um, and you should read more about it on their website. Um, and so you have different classes of sizes, something from a demi barrique which is a half barrel, which is about 30 U.S. gallons. And then you have, all these names are in French, um, a Beaujolais, nice, which is uh, 59.4 U.S. gallons, which is usually the typical standard size of the barrel. And then you'll have something like, it'll get progressively larger, obviously, to what is called a Faudre, which the site that I am looking at says it's technically not a barrel, but other people said it was. It's fine. Which can be about 500 to 32,000 gallons, which is massive. Kevin's making a case. 32,000 <laughs> gallons of wine. <laughs> yeah, it's big. That's big. I can see why it's not a barrel per se. Um, but obviously it. You know, the capacity of wine, the exchange with the oak surface really makes a difference. And I bet that also takes, like, you have to take the size of the barrel into consideration when you're thinking about how often you can use that barrel. So maybe with a smaller barrel, you really don't get as much exchange, like, uh, many cycles with it. You may have to only use it three times versus five times because you're, you know, really getting that oak exchange pretty quickly. Um which comes now to the importance of phenols. Um, and so, because I love science, 
I'm going to talk a little bit about chemistry. I'm not an expert. So um, there are two different types of phenols. There are non-flavonoids and flavonoids. And I have a sinking suspicion that we talked about flavonoids in a previous episode. And it sounds I familiar. feel like you did that chemistry part. Also not a chemist. <laughs> so anyway, the thing that I want to highlight are the flavonoids. Um, and it's because a type of flavonoid is tannin. Um, and so we may associate tannins with grapes or um, in the seeds, stems, and skins, particularly of red wine. And so when you're making red wines, the exposure to stems, seeds, and skins will make a wine more tannic, thus more bitter. And you'll get that kind of robustness, bitiness, sometimes leather flavoring. Um, but you can also get tannins from oak. Um, and so the longer you have an oak, uh, wine in an oak barrel, the more tannins get imparted to it, and you're also going to get that um, coconut, vanilla flavors that we were talking about before, um, modulated by that, those you know, the tannic, leathery feelings that we, we associate. So, again, not a chemist. And I am super glossing over three other types of flavonoids that are crucial, or not crucial, but important to this uh, chemical winemaking story. But I highly recommend you check out Washington State University's primer on phenols. It was extremely informative um, and a little technical. So if you're really into it, look it up over there. Um, but it, I mean, the, the long story short, there are so many different components that oak barrels impart on wines. And so it's, it's really up to the winemaker to make those decisions when determining what kind of wine they want to use. Yeah. And as a call to action, we are still looking for a chemist, a wine chemist who wants to come on the podcast, the Bill Nye of wine, if you will, uh, to come explain these things to us in, in, in layman's terms. Yes, please. Period. <laughs> if you're out there, Bill Nye of wine, you know where to find us. We're going to love to like hang out and drink wine with you too. <laughs> And that's pretty much all we have on oak. Uh, I wanted to end with a couple of different techniques that are kind of resurgent in the wine world. And I think a lot of this has to do with in the past decade or so of wine, I think there has been um, sort of a, a decentralization of sort of wine regulations and traditional mechanics um, that have been associated with what makes a wine good. And, and in that movement, uh, we're finding different winemaking techniques that either have been used in the past or are new altogether that are becoming more accepted um, and more, um, yeah, more mainstream in the wine world. And for small winemakers for whom barrels themselves are either logistically challenging because of price or space or anything like that, are turning to different types of aging methods that don't include oak at all, besides just the classic stainless steel um, tank. And one of those that's relatively new, well, it's been around for a while, but has kind of been uh, frowned upon, but I think is, is becoming more resurgent, is concrete tanks. And concrete is great for inconsistent climates because it helps regulate temperature, 
The type of concrete being used can add different mineral notes to wine that you might get from different types of soil and rocks. Um, one downside with concrete tanks is that uh, for white wines or white grapes grown in very, very hot climates, um, the concrete can kind of make the wines a little bit too fruity, too fruit balmy. Um, but one really cool thing that I love about what we call concrete eggs, eggs just being like the shape of the concrete tanks that the wine's being aged in, is that they self-stir. So in the winemaking process, wine barrels, stainless steel wine has to be stirred to hmm. move the different particles around to keep things moving. And that often happens manually. More often these days in like the big stainless steel tanks, they'll have stirring mechanisms, automatic stirring mechanisms built into them. And you can kind of regulate exactly how often and how much those wines get stirred. Uh, but for these concrete eggs, as the juice ferments, bubbles of carbon dioxide rise along the sides of the egg and the liquid pushes up along these sides um, and then kind of gets sucked through the middle in the center, center like back down to the bottom of the egg, like a funnel towards the bottom, um, which keeps the leaves in constant suspension. So, but between the, the, the material and the shape, the wine just naturally regulates itself and does not need to then be manually stirred. That's so cool. So cool things with concrete tanks, especially for different types of, um, of white wines. Uh, yeah, I like that one a lot. The other one that is actually one of the oldest techniques in making wine that is coming back in the natural uh, biodynamic kind of wine movement is amphora clay. So clay pots. Um, it's trendy because it's, uh, it's ancient. You know, it goes back to like, you know, the Romans and the Greeks. This is how they made their wines. Um, so that's cool in and of itself. It's considered a more natural technique as it's using natural earth clays. Um, and the, the clay can actually be stored in cool cellars or literally buried in the earth. Um, when I first heard about orange wines from the country of Georgia, um, we learned that they were made in clay pots that were buried into the ground. And that's a common winemaking style there, but also even more common in other places as well. The clay can also be lined with beeswax. So one of the problems with, with one of the problems with clay is that it's more porous, right? So the oxid oxidization of the wine um, happens at a somewhat increased rate. But you can actually line the clay pots with a natural beeswax to help control the amount of oxygen transfer. And overall, wines that are aged in clay pots, especially reds, come out a lot more earthy, kind of mushroomy, um, which are pretty well accepted, great notes in different types of reds. So um, more and more clay pot wines um, being used, and especially some of the more hip, trendy places around here in California, uh, they're pretty well advertised as using that technique. And I think it's pretty cool. Thanks for some great wines. I agree. I love wine wine. It's one of my favorites. And definitely more cost-effective than some of the traditional barreling, oak barreling techniques as well. Yes. Something that I didn't do research into, but came to me during this conversation is how wine barrels can be reused by beer companies, right? And all as well as sherries and other liqueurs in order to get that 
kind of wine flavor, but it's that alcohol. So there is an exchange at least going forward of that wine barrel, though I don't think it's a very, there are very specific regulations for whiskey barrels and for bourbon barrels in how much leeway they have to reusing barrels, if I'm not mistaken. I didn't do that much research into it. There's actually a great brewery down the street here called Camino Brewery here in San Jose um, that makes a cab barrel aged like farmhouse saison. Oh, uh, actually, really good. I usually don't go for the more creative beers like that, but that one was really cool. Hmm. And I've also seen more and more about wines being aged in like whiskey barrels and bourbon barrels. That's becoming much more common too. Mm-hmm. Especially with cabs, you get a really it becomes really really smooth. Um, really low tannin, um, lots of vanilla, caramelly notes coming out in those. And, um, yeah, those are coming more, more common to see around grocery stores and stuff as well, too. So that's also, yeah, a cool exchange of barrels being used for multiple types of, uh, processes. Yeah, I love it. Sweet. So, wine of the week? Yeah, go for it. So, this week, I, had a fun opportunity for the 4th of July to go to someone's house that loves mine. And we were talking about oaking and oaking processes, which kind of inspired me to think about this as a larger podcast. And I tasted a Maison Evanstad Santenay, a Premier Cru du Paris. Cannot say it, it's French. I'm so sorry. I definitely butchered that. But um, pretty much a Santané is a region, um, one of the south, southernmost regions of the Burgundy uh, wine growing region in France. And it's known for its Pinot Noirs, and they do have a, a small quantity of Chardonnay. And so this Santané that I tasted from 2015 is in Chardonnay. Um and it is, so I, I usually also don't go for Chardonnays, um, just because for me, I like a more creamier tasting Chardonnay and these Chardonnays in, in California can be more oaky, ironically. Um, but this one was, oak, is a French, it was in French oak. It had a more green apple taste to it. It was a little bit lighter. Then a medium body, then had this very soft golden hue with a very nice lingering finish. And it was perfect for a hot day and had a little bit more of that like weighted feel to it. So I really enjoyed it. Well, that sounds delicious. Yeah, it was really good. <laughs> and my wine of the week is um, from a winemaker named Peter Zimmer. Uh, and it is a Lagraine from 2018 from the Alto Adige region in Italy. Hmm. And I was actually had the opportunity to try a Lagraine grape for the first time. Never heard of it. Um, at a, a really nice wine bar, I was visiting North Carolina and they focus in a lot of unusual uh, and less common grape varieties, which is exactly what I'm looking for. I love doing that. And the Lagraine was delicious. Um, most Italian reds, uh, tend to be a little bit lighter bodied, a little bit easier drinking, um, really well paired well with food, a little bit more like spice notes in them. 
This, uncharacteristically for most of the Italian reds I've tasted, was very full-bodied, very, very dense, um, and had a really heavy dark chocolate thing going on. Not just in like its slightly bitter, slightly sweet, chocolatey flavor, but also in its kind of strange tannins that were very like, what do you call it? Like when you have like a dark chocolate, it's kind of like dusty and chalky. Uh, chalky. Yeah, exactly. Um, it was kind of like drinking a dark chocolate and it was delicious. I'm not sure how it would pair well with a lot of things, but on its own, uh, really cool. And definitely makes me intrigued. I have no idea if that's typical for Lagrange, because I've never had a Lagrange, but definitely intrigued to try and find more Lagrange out there. If anyone has suggestions, let us know. I also feel like our Wines of the Week make us realize how massive the varietal world is out there. Like, I would love to see you know, like a map where you can find these varietals that are typically grown or, you know, even how they're related to, you know, different fruits that we may be more familiar with. And, you know, even thinking like Chardonnays to Roussans to Marsans to this one grown in Santané. It'd be kind of really cool to see those properties kind of outlined. Absolutely. Or just tasting. Yeah. <laughs> I love tasting new varietals. It's it's really fun. So sweet. Well, I think that's everything for us. Yeah. Thanks so much for listening. And we'll talk to you again soon. Bye everyone.